0: Well, we're still here, so let's talk about it. Today, I'm going to talk about the Hemlock Society. The Hemlock Society was founded in 1980, but the desire for euthanasia, as it was called historically, actually started way sooner than that. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but let's talk about the Hemlock Society first. The Hemlock Society was in existence as a national organization from 1980 to 2003. In 2004, Faye Gersh took over and runs the San Diego group. Presently, the San Diego group is the only existing Hemlock group in the country. Faye Gersh does not necessarily run it anymore, but she still is an active member of the board. And actually how I found her was looking up Hemlock Society and a YouTube video was posted of a Zoom meeting they held during COVID, so pretty recent. Derek Humphrey was actually the person in 1980 who started the Hemlock Society. Humphrey wrote a book called Gene's Way. He did this after he helped his wife Jean die. This was around 1976. At that same time, he really became an activist to drive forward this idea of a living will, and to talk about patient's right to choose Death. Suicide, as he put it, was no longer illegal, and so therefore people should be given the right to make this choice. In the 1930s, in New York, there was the Euthanasia Society of America. In 1910, in the state of Ohio, the Euthanasia Bill was defeated. We can document back that far, and probably farther if I really looked more deeply to people who wanted this choice for themselves and perhaps others in their life or just humanity in general. Getting back to Humphrey, he took the proceeds from the book Jean's Way and created the Hemlock Society. The Euthanasia Society of America had become Concern for Dying and the Society for the Right to Die. So it split off, and then the word hemlock was chosen because it symbolized rational suicide. And the description mentioned that Socrates had been given an option of exile or death. So he chose to take a hemlock drink, which was a very common practice for political prisoners. Not a nice death, but it was better for him than leaving his homeland. Humphrey wrote many, many books The one that I'm really going to want to talk about today was called Final Exit, and that was in 1991. Going back to the history, Washington and California continued their lobby to push the death with dignity uh, idea. In 2005, Washington began an organization called Compassion in Dying. At about the same time, the Hemlock Society of California decided to rename themselves to End-of-Life Choices in 2004. Actually, probably more closely to 2003, because it was their very much more conservative way of doing things that caused Faye Gersh to contact Humphrey and some other Hemlock members to come up with a different organization that was not quite so strict or rigid, fearful, etc., That is when, in 2004, they created Compassion and Choices. That is still alive today, as a matter of fact. So now I wanna talk about the video. This was the Zoom video put on YouTube that Faye Gersh started and then introduced a medical professional to really discuss what it is the Final Exit Network does. The Hemlock Society of San Diego described a program that they had begun as a national organization called the Caring Friends Program. When Compassion and Choices took over the other regions, and really what caused Fay and her colleagues to break off from Compassion and Choices was that they did not believe in the use of inert gas, which is what the Caring Friends Program had been doing to help people make their final exit. The other thing that happened was they couldn't get drugs. Jack Kevorkian was well-known already by then, and we couldn't get drugs to help patients die the way that they wanted. Though so they decided that they would choose a different way. And so they did their research, and this is what they came across based on the Final Exit book written by Humphrey. Originally, this gas that they used was helium. But over time, helium began to be diluted with water, And they didn't think that would be effective in achieving their goal. So they switched to nitrogen. I want to point out here as well that the idea of the Caring Friends Network was not approved by Compassion and Choices. But I think I want to share with you almost their motto about this final exit, this self-deliverance of a means to help yourself end your life, or hasten your death. They say this method provides a speedy, comfortable, certain solution to end suffering. They also, in this Zoom meeting, compared the Oregon model, which I talked about a while back, and what the Final Exit Network model offers. The Oregon model is adopted in 10 states only, whereas the FEN model, because they don't use prescriptions that are prescribed by medical doctors, it's available in all states. The Oregon model requires doctor's prescription for the medication cocktail that the person has to consume or swallow. The final exit network model uses civilians, these guides, medical doctors who are on the medical evaluation committee, but are not assisting any patient in their final exit. With the Oregon model, a patient can choose to die alone. With the FEN model, two guides are present at that time along with any family members that the the client, as they call them, chooses. The Oregon model, you have to pay the doctor for the visit. You also have to get them to prescribe the medications and you have to buy the medications. With the final exit network model, it's free. The only thing you need to do is buy your equipment. You don't pay for the guides to travel wherever you are. In the Oregon model, you must be able to swallow the drugs. If you can't swallow the drugs, you are not going to be able to complete your task. With the fan model, as I pointed out, you're inhaling inert gas. So you simply must be able to assemble the kit and then follow through the steps to complete the task. At this point in the video, Sally Hall, MD, who is one of the medical evaluators, I believe she said there are seven on the medical evaluation committee, came on and described what it is that the guides do, and almost a checklist of what they go through when a client makes initial contact. I didn't include everything here. I think if you want to look at it, I would direct you to the finalexitnetwork.org website, Or even Hemlock Society, and it'll pop up for you there as well. What Sally pointed out is that it's not illegal to teach and be present when someone self-delivers this method of inert gas inhalation. They can teach the process, they can have the person demonstrate to show that they know how to do it and are capable of following instructions, but they cannot assist. They may not also provide the means, and they must determine that the person is capable and able to assemble the equipment and is mentally capable of understanding what they're doing. So a person would would reach out to contact the final exit network. They would perform an initial triage to determine whether the criteria they have are being met And there's some basic questions that'll get you past call number one and begin the lengthy process here. What is considered a main criteria is for a person, a client, to have irreversible medical conditions that seriously degrade a person's life. They describe this as something such that would cause somebody to be in a care facility unable to carry out their wishes of end of life or hastening their death. They must complete a personal statement as well. It's a page long, and they said it takes about 45 minutes to do that. But they describe their illness, they describe why they want to do this, and a little bit about their personal life, etc. If they describe mental illness, they cannot be accepted, and the relationship ends there. This is just to ensure that we're not dealing with someone with depression, because right now, The law does not recognize that as a viable option for self-deliverance of medication. The next thing that they do is provide a safeguard to ensure that this is a voluntary decision to exit within a year or less, and that it was not being forced on them by anybody else. The next step then, if they get that portion completed, is they would submit their medical records These medical records would be reviewed by the medical evaluation committee. And in this case, three doctors from that committee of seven must agree unanimously that this person, this client, would be able to receive services. If two out of the three agree, they may invite a third. But if they can only get two, then the relationship ends right there and they don't go any further. If they pass the medical records and the personal statement and initial triage portion, then they would be called and interviewed by a trained guide. This is again, just to get to know them personally, find out about their life situation, who lives with them, who they may want to attend, their exit, and to explain the method and whether or not they can manage the equipment. That takes care of the next part, The next visit actually to the home happens when the client decides, yes, I've met all the parameters. Yes, I still want to go through with it. Yes, I've purchased the equipment and I have it in my home. At that time, two senior guides will attend the person's home to meet them personally, to meet whoever is going to be in attendance personally, to get an idea of the layout of the home and their lifestyle Uh, Just anything to really make it a more personal experience. They also at that time designate who they want to discover the body. And I'm putting this in air quotes because those people were there. They saw what happened. They know. But what they do is choose someone who is out of town or off site somewhere that I guess have an alibi that would say something along the lines of, and this came from Dr. Hall, I have a friend who is very, very ill, struggling with a serious illness. I haven't heard from them in a while, and I wonder if you might go check on them. When the authorities go to do this welfare check is when they would discover the body. Then they would make their report, and the coroner would be called, and then the process goes from there. The other thing that is required here is your final wishes must be in order, whether you want burial, cremation, etc., Also, they really encourage any unspoken conversations to take place, that you don't keep it a secret from anyone who is important in your life. Dr. Hall described two situations that happened to her personally as a senior guide. There was a gentleman who had two adult kids who were quite religious. He didn't really want them to know because he knew that they would oppose. However, Dr. Sally Hall encouraged him to inform his children because she described this scenario of him choosing to die and the kids finding out after the fact could have been very devastating to them. So the gentleman did so, informed his children. The children vehemently disagreed with his decision, contacted the authorities, and had him committed against his will. This is not the end that he wanted, of course. Dr. Hall didn't indicate, but I'm assuming that his window closed then because he had been committed, and then that would probably attach a mental capacity diagnosis, which would immediately disqualify him from being able to participate in this inert gas method of self-deliverance and final exit. The next story that Dr. Hall related was of a woman who had a sister who was very religious and was an attorney. The sister very strongly disagreed with what her sister was wanting to do and told her so and just refused and refused and refused. The senior guide, Dr. Hall and her partner spoke with the sister and as they developed a relationship with the client, the sister began to sow the seeds that had been planted by the guides about why this should be the sister's opinion, and the sister's decision, it became a sense of awareness that the attorney slash religious sister had of what her sister was suffering and why she was choosing this and ultimately understood and agreed with the sister's decision. So there you have a positive end, if you want to call it that, and a negative end. One person was able to see her wishes through to her final exit. The other was not. There's a couple of movies that Dr. Hall mentioned. The first one was called Still Alice. This was about a woman with dementia who had decided when the time was right, she was going to end her own life. She had been stockpiling medications. She put a little note on her computer that would pop up so that at that time, she knew it was time to get the medications that she had hidden and end her life. That way no one would have to know, no legality issues would be present. As the story goes, she went into the bedroom to find her medicine. The phone rang. She took the call. She came back, could not remember why she was in the room. As a result, the window closed on her. She couldn't find the medicine. She didn't even remember that she had medicine. She probably at that point may not have even remembered that she had chosen to end her life many months earlier than that. What Dr. Hall said about this and patients with dementia is in order to self-deliver or make a final exit with this model, you must leave some life on the table. Let that sink in a minute. We talk about quality of life. A person with dementia once they understand their diagnosis, knows that they will not have cognition forever, that they are beginning to lose their capacity little by little by little. They have to make sure that they can take the medicine, do the, do the inhalation of gas, whatever it is, and that means that there's still some cognition and awareness in their mind in order to carry this out. That means that they may die sooner than someone, say, who has a terminal illness, who maybe has days to live or weeks, however they choose. That made me kind of sad. But I would say a lot of dementia patients leave life on the table. Dementia really robs people in so many ways. Hmm. But that's a discussion for another time. Another movie that was mentioned was called Short Stay in Switzerland. In this movie, A woman had been diagnosed with cancer. The family traveled with her to Switzerland and became a part of what's called Dignitas, D-I-G-N-I-T-A-S. It's a society in Switzerland for people who wish to end their life. And the movie, according to Dr. Hall, was just a very sweet, loving explanation and description of a woman who wanted to end her life and how the family supported her and came around her and helped her have that end that she desired. All right, now we've described all the criteria to have a final exit. Following all of the checklists, the final meeting takes place. In the final exit, the client contacts the final exit network says, this is the day I want to die. Then two guides, senior guides at that, will go to the client's home. They will be there till the time after the patient or client has died, maybe even after the body has been removed. She didn't quite say, but what she did say was that their job there is to help those who are witnessing know what to expect once the gas is being consumed and to guide the client through the final performance, as she called it, without any assistance. They also are there to provide emotional support to the family because some people may not know or realize what it actually looks like to die in this manner. And they give them the opportunity to leave the room if they choose, but the emotional support is there by the two guides nonetheless following the person's death, they also make themselves available to the surviving family members to continue that emotional support for as long as the family needs. This was a lot more than I realized. I had heard this Zoom meeting a few months back, took some notes, and when I started to prepare it for you today, I realized I left so much out. So I actually went through and listened to it again. But pressed stop and took better notes because there's a lot of really good information in here. And it's just another opportunity to understand and learn that there are more ways that clients or patients can choose to end their life if they have a serious illness that will shorten their life or their quality of life and autonomy. I think that's really important to keep in mind. The last thing I want to say, and I think this is important when we're talking about this acceptance of guide support to end one's life. They need to be able to describe a serious physical suffering or impending loss of selfhood, not necessarily a terminal illness of six months or less like hospice does to get care from them or medical aid in dying. I wanted to save this for the end, because if a patient is having strokes, their mind is still active, but they may not actually have life, a quality of life. They may have lost so much physical ability that their life really, to them, is suffering beyond what they are willing to bear. I like that serious physical suffering or impending loss of selfhood. I believe that is the death with dignity model right there. For some people, dignity means being able to go to the bathroom themselves, being able to be in control themselves, including and their life themselves. And that in a majority of the time, according to Dr. Hall, according to Fay Gersh, according to other people that I have read, once the patient or client has been given this permission, to move ahead with medical aid in dying or physician assisted suicide or the final exit network procedure. Once they know they've got that, that's really all they need. As a matter of fact, Dr. Hall said, once all of that is completed and they've bought the equipment, they don't ever call them back. And unfortunately they can't track whether it's the window that closed, the patient died Or if the patient was just so happy and so comfortable to know that their decision had been honored, that they don't need to die at that point. Or in some cases, cancer goes into remission. And we've talked about this before, where hospice care becomes so important in their lives that they actually are doing better physically than they were when they made this decision. The bottom line is choice. The bottom line is autonomy and decision. Decision that one person makes about their life alone. Not that they don't involve loved ones because they absolutely should. And not that they procure all these things alone either, because in this case, there are guides there, the Hemlock Society and the Final Exit Network, Compassion and Choices, all these organizations that are designed to help people. Then there's the medical aid in dying that requires physician assistance, not assistance, excuse me, not assistance, but needs a physician to prescribe the medications needed for them to take and end their life in that manner. That was a lot. I usually try not to go this long, but I hope that you learned a lot, probably more than you thought you would about the Hemlock Society and the Final Exit Network. But I hope that it wraps it up for you in a way that you can see how important it is to some people that they are given this choice and why even the medical aid and dying community is looking to get more than 10 states to approve of their method of ending one's life. I'm glad you were here. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. You can go to my website for more articles, little news pieces, or a transcript of this podcast. The website is whilewerestillhere.com. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can send me an email too. Thanks again, and until next time, take care.